welcome to another edition of our Careers in Medicine Coffee to Go podcast. In this episode, we get a chance to sit down with Dr. Keflamarian. He is an anesthesiologist and he is going to go into detail on how he chose the field of anesthesiology and what it took to match. And with that, I give you Coffee with an Anesthesiologist. Good morning, everybody, or afternoon, I should say. Um, my name is Yanavi Keflamarium. I am a cardiothoracic anesthesiologist who is currently at Valley Baptist, practicing between Valley Baptist in Harlingen and Brownsville. Um, so my background, uh, I actually went to medical school. I grew up in Houston, so I went to um, I went to medical school. Well, I'm, I'm a Longhorn, so starting with undergrad, I went to UT. Um, so any Longhorns in here, I, I see you guys. Um, but medical school, I did at Baylor in Houston. Uh, I went to residency in Louisiana at a little small branch of LSU, which was in Shreveport, Louisiana. So a very, very small town. I'm not sure if any of you guys are familiar with it, but if you've ever been there, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, from residency, I went to fellowship and did a cardiothoracic fellowship uh, at the University of Florida in Gainesville, Florida, and actually moved from there to the Valley, which I had um, never heard of. Well, actually, I take that back. I have. I went to South Padre one spring break in college, but still didn't realize where that was. Just got on the road and ended up in South Padre. Um, so yeah, what drew me to the specialty? So I actually, I'm not sure how many of you guys are in the same boat, but I had no idea what I wanted to do. So you get through basic sciences and you're kind of like, okay, well, everything seems cool. Um, I'm not sure which direction, you know, some of, some of you are lucky enough to know what you want to do and have had exposure prior to. Um, for me, it was clinical rotations had no idea what I wanted to do. My first rotation was surgery rotation. Um, and so don't take anything that I say to heart if the specialty I'm talking about is what you decide to do. But the first surgeon I worked with was not the nicest. So he kind of fit the stereotype of what most people used to think um, about surgeons. He was a very, very stiff gentleman. He was older in his practice. He brought, I mean, he was very specific and meticulous about everything. So he had his own scrub techs. He had his, you know, it's almost like a private patient base. Um, so he just had a team and he was very used to everybody being on the ball. And then here I come, I'm just literally walking into the OR after watching a 20 minute video of how to scrub and stay sterile. So green as they can get, get in the OR. Um, he was just on me. He was riding me the whole day. Um, we did an eight or 10 hour master abdominal mass resection or something. So basically I was just retracting the entire case, which is, I'm sure you guys will, if you haven't experienced already be very good at by the time you're done with your surgery rotation. Um, and it was just horrible. So, I mean, I, for me, at least I was standing on my feet the entire time. There's no breaks, you know, you, you, you're new, you don't really know what you're doing. Um, and then this guy is just very overbearing and he's just on me about little stuff. And then of course, you know, when they start to pimp you and you, if you're nervous or not, whether or not you know what they're talking about, it's just not, it wasn't fun for me. So that kind of scarred me a little bit. Um, but I had to think a month, two weeks to a month worth of this. So by the end of it, clearly I was just, I was like, no, I can't, I can't do that. Um, it's not for me. Um, so what initially, I, I mean, I, I started off kind of went from a neurology standpoint. I thought neuro was cool. Um, I rounded with a neurosurgeon that kind of pushed me more towards surgical specialties. Thought it, radiology would be cool. I honestly, I'm, I'm as straight up as they come. I couldn't stay awake in a reading room during my rotation. So that was kind of out for me because it's just, work. Um, 
So then uh, yeah, got in the ORs. And once I saw that there was this person behind this curtain who would pop his head up maybe once every 30, 45 minutes and just to look and see what's going on with the surgery and then sit right back down and just pretty much be quiet as a mouse. I had to know what they were doing because that seemed more like my life. Um, so, you know, inquired a little bit more about who they were with, I think that was actually a CRNA um, at the time. And then it kind of, you know, sparked my interest. Once I actually learned more about the field, it seemed to be perfect for me. Um, I like to be hands-on, um, but I put, it's a culmination of everything. So, you know, I like technical ability. So all the um, ins and outs of intubations, IV access, uh, nerve blocks, everything that's hands-on, it, it just, it, it, it's a turn on for me, honestly. So um, anesthesia obviously has a balance of patient care, critical care, and then these technical you know, assets that you have to have to thrive in the specialty. Um, so that's essentially what got me interested. And then, you know, with more exposure became, I just became more and more interested. Um, and I was fortunate enough, and I encourage all of you to do the same thing, have as many sessions like this as you can um, and get to know people like off camera, as in to say, find out the real, who these people really are and what really drives them. Because there's a lot of stuff that you're gonna get that uh, it's almost coerced or, or they're gonna tell you things that don't necessarily reflect how they truly live. Um, so things as far as like your work-life balance, you know, some of you may have families already. So how much time are you gonna actually get with your families? Uh, what do your days look like? Um, you know, financial benefits, uh, financial freedom, things of that nature. You know, they, nobody in medicine really wants to talk about finances. Um, and that's okay because there's a, there's a certain gap that exists between the business of medicine and then the practice of medicine. Um, so as much as you guys can find out in that regard, it also, it, it shouldn't sway you to one practice versus another, but it should also just, you know, reaffirm whatever it is that you're possibly thinking about doing. Um, so that being said, I mean, it all kind of just matched up for me. Uh, everything fell into place. I was lucky enough to, um, the program I went to as far as medical school was Baylor. I'm sure most of you've heard of Baylor, uh, being that we are in Texas. Uh, it was a very good school. Um, I have nothing bad to say about Baylor. We, we, was, we had a pretty big class, so that was the only challenging aspect. And taking that in hand, um, when I applied for residencies, I actually, I didn't match my first, yeah, I didn't match. I want to say I scrambled. Um, actually, I take that back. I didn't match the first time around. So I decided to um, take a year off. Uh, I did research uh, with a family friend who was actually in ophthalmology, just kind of something, you know, off to the side. But um, during that time, uh, the, a year came around, I wasn't so inclined to just jump right in. So I took a year off um, and reapplied. And I interviewed at LSU in Shreveport. I really wanted to stay in the South. You know, I'm from the South. I wanted to not have to deal with snow uh, as much as possible. So interviewed all across the South uh, from Texas to Florida, I think as far as, I can't remember if I went to California or not. I don't think I did Cali, but um, went to Shreveport. Shreveport is a very small town, very small community, very sick people. Um, their residency had eight spots and I think the most memorable part about that interview was um, I met with the program director at the time and she pretty much told me, she was like, look, we're country, you're country, you're from Texas, you're, you know, as long as you're an open mind, open-minded individual, you're going to get more than enough. And honestly, everything she said came to life. Um, patient, like the exposure, the type of patient that we dealt with were the sickest of the sick. Um, 
very similar to what you know you deal with here in the valley uh, as far as you know with access to healthcare and whatever stigma you know revolve around seeing doctors um and so yeah i mean i had a plethora of cases i had any and everything i could possibly think of uh, as far as exposure from training um the town itself wasn't all that exciting so i know some of you want to may want to be in bigger cities and so forth um for me i just kind of went out on a limb went to some place i'd never heard of i'd never been to didn't have any friends or family there and it worked out for me and subsequently did the same thing with fellowship and i mean i'm i'm as happy as can be um so what would i say in regards to residency um apply to i mean apply to places that you want to be at first and foremost um and then i would say you know as a safety net apply to other places that um may not be ideal for you you know if you had a perfect uh, pick but it's something that you can tolerate i mean residency so long to me the way i look at it as long as they're acgme accredited get it done you're going to go through residency you're going to get exposed they're obviously are accredited for a reason so you're going to see a certain patient population and the caseloads that will meet you know what you need to at least as a foundation for whatever specialty you're going to go into and then pretty much how you perform and how you build your practice from there i always looked at residency as you know, it's 50%, what you learn is 50% what you're going to do in your own practice, 50% what you wouldn't do in your practice, or at least you would think twice about. Um, so not everything that you see is going to be pocketed to say, oh, I definitely, you know, this is the stuff I would, I would, this is how I would carry myself or how I would, you know, treat my patients. Um, so it's an all around learning experience, you know, nothing really negative to say about any of the places I went. Um, so fellowship, uh, so that if you guys aren't familiar, anesthesiology is a four year residency. Um, you usually have two options, which I believe, and again, I'm, I'm kind of far removed. So there's categorical spots and transitional spots. And if any of you guys feel free to chime in and, and update me if I'm wrong, um, if anything has changed. Uh, I do know that I sat on interview committee. I was for my chief resident year in residency. We'll talk about that a little bit more. Um, but categorical spots seem to be more in favor because of the fact that a, a categorical spot basically means you apply and you're there at that institution for four years. So all the way through your anesthesia residency. The transitional year, which some people do um, for different reasons, is basically a, an intern year of more often than not surgery or medicine. And then you apply to do your last three years um, as an anesthesia resident anywhere else. Uh, most programs seem to favor categorical spots, at least they did, because of the fact that they don't wanna have to replace you. Um, so say for instance, if they accepted you as a transitional uh, intern, knowing you're going to leave they know that next year they're going to have a spot to fill um that's just the notion that i got back when i was applying um but regardless of the fact i mean like i said residency is residency you, you know you get the most you pull the most out of it it's your it's your own experience how you build it um so i did four years and shreveport got more than enough ex patient exposure um then i did i wasn't actually sure when i got to my when it came time to apply for potentially apply for fellowships or apply for jobs, I was pretty much worn out. I was like, look, I'm, I've mastered the art. Well, I, I was tired of being broke per se. Um, so I was like, you know, I was kind of back and forth. Should I do a fellowship? Should I not? You know, nobody wants to go through another round of interviews and personal statements, and, you know, the whole nine, once you get to that point. So I was ready to make some money. Um, and then I sat down with my faculty mentor who actually ended up being a really good friend to me versus just a faculty advisor who came from private practice. And he told me straight up, you're gonna do a fellowship. He's like, you're gonna protect yourself as far as job security, if it were to ever be an issue, 
and you're you're going to maximize how good you really are at this stuff. And so I took his advice. He actually did his residency at University of Florida, and he told me that the anesthesiologists there are out of this world amazing, some of the best in the world, which they were very reputable across the country. Um, and I applied and managed to get picked first. So it was, it, it worked. Um, did that year, that year was amazing. I looked at, at my choices uh, for fellowship in anesthesia came between cardiac and pediatrics. So if you're not familiar, most of the fellowships uh, are one-year fellowships. So you have cardiothoracic, you have neuroanesthesia, you have OB, you have chronic pain, which is a separate avenue if you decide to go that route. Um, what am I missing? There's a regional fellowship, which is a lot of peripheral nerve blocks, uh, pain management type of stuff. Um, and then there's a critical care fellowship. Now you can actually do a critical care and cardiac combined fellowship, so which is actually gonna be two years um, in case you wanted even more ICU experience. Uh, in the specialty, if as I'm sure you guys can imagine, you're during your residency, you are gonna have quite a bit of critical care uh, exposure. You'll do probably about four months on average of ICU uh, rotations, but in and of itself, if you're doing a trauma, that's about as critical care as it gets. Um, from you having the knowledge base to essentially save somebody's life, um, the way we work, the way our minds work, uh, we pretty much have like four plans in place without even knowing it. It's just almost instinct once you get to that point. So a patient presents, you basically have seconds to realize what's going on, have differentials going in your mind um, and execute on a plan. And if that doesn't work, then you jump to the next one. And it, it, I mean, that's, that's the excitement for me. So there's a little bit of an adrenaline rush uh, in that. So, you know, for adrenaline junkies, there is to be something said of how we practice. Um, but uh, yeah, let me not get too, too sidetracked. But as far as fellowship, I uh, did the year of fellowship, saw some amazing stuff. I was basically, uh, we did all kinds of stuff. Florida was a very, very busy service. Um, but all in all, it was, it was awesome. Um, so you have that option. Um, and obviously there's benefits of fellowship. You know, you become more, you have a higher demand as far as, um, because you're more qualified uh, in particular arenas, cardiac for me, that places are actually looking forward to, or looking for people like me to come in and fill a void for, you know, a cardiac um, program or to, to get the ball rolling and have somebody who's uh, boarded. One other aspect of the cardiac fellowship is you can actually become boarded in echo, uh, perioperative echocardiograph or echocardiograph, yeah, echocardiography, excuse me. Um, so they used to have that available for cardiac um, fellowships and ICU fellowships or critical care fellowships. I think they removed that to where you only can get it if you're a cardiothoracic fellow uh, through anesthesia, but don't quote me on that. We'll have to go back to that. Um, so yeah, so then I decided to start looking for jobs. Uh, my parents are still in Houston. I wanted to be back close to family uh, because my siblings are on one on the West Coast, one on the East Coast. Um, just so happened to see that same faculty advisor I had in residency, he still had his information out with recruiters. A particular job posting came across his email. He knew I wanted to be in Texas. He forwarded it to me. I came down to the Valley, interviewed, and the offer that um, I was given here I pretty much put it up against any other offer I had in the country, and this made the most sense for me. So here I am. I told myself, um, being that you know I'm single, no kids, uh, I could move around freely. So I said, let me give it a year, see how it works out. Um, and that was now four years ago. So it clearly worked out for me. Um, 
what else can I tell you? Are there any questions? I know I've kind of been running on for the last 15 minutes. Anybody want to chime in and ask any particular questions? You said you were a part of the um, a residency recruitment. Yes, um, yes, I do was. Do you have any uh, advice what y'all looked for? So I, that's a great question. So yes, um, I know you guys are probably dreading the interview trail. Everybody does. So let me, let me take a step back and say that every physician you ever meet, we, we've all been there. Even if some of them act like they don't know what you're talking about or we've all been there, we all know how it goes. So for me, when I was um, on that interview committee or that res yeah, the interview committee, it um, is very interesting. So a lot of you guys may not know, but somehow or another, we all seem to fall into this trap, if you will, of how to be a good candidate. And it's almost as if like you, we all read the same book or we all somehow come to this. Now, you don't, you don't want to be cookie cutter, right? So it's hard for you to not be that and, and also figure out how to express your personality without, you know, doing too much. So one thing that I did notice um, when it came time to separating these candidates out, it, what it ultimately comes down to is people who are effectively in positions to, uh, grant you a spot in their residency program, they want to know a few things, one of which is that you're normal, right? They want to know that you're going to be able to deal with patients effectively and still, I mean, bedside manner goes above and beyond. Um, yes, as an anesthesiologist, I have a ton of drugs that I could potentially give you that will make you chill out, but I would much rather sit there and talk to you for 10 to 15 minutes and kind of get an understanding, build some rapport to where you're okay. You know, like I'm a complete stranger. So the nature of our business, we're complete strangers meeting these patients. And then we have about 10 minutes, you know, depending on how pressed the surgeon is, you have about 10 minutes to build rapport enough with this patient to let them trust you with their life or their child's life or their family member's life. That, that's an art form in and of itself. Um, so that being said, we want people, we would want people that we know that we can teach, that are teachable, right? They're normal, that they're not going to be um, necessarily overly stressed or, uh, overly anxious, you know, just they're going to learn and, and take that with them throughout the course of their residency and just become awesome anesthesiologists. That's, that's our whole goal. Um, I did notice that personal statements, personal statements, honestly, I, they suck. And um, you guys, if you haven't gotten there yet, you will. Um, because you don't, you have this much space in a page, ideally, to convince somebody as to why you want to do this. Now, as if it's not enough that you're applying, which shows interest, you, you know, there's an art form to it. So um, for anesthesia, I can only speak to anesthesia because obviously this is all I know. Um, I started to notice that every personal statement kind of sounded alike. And there's always, you know, a couple lines about pharmacology and physiology and, and you know, and it, it's not anybody's fault, but, you know, it would be a random personal statement that I would read that would catch my interest. Like, man, this guy or this young lady is lives a great life outside of medicine or, you know, what brought them into medicine makes it's, you would never even think that, you know, that would push them this in, in this direction. Um, so I say that to just say, you know, when you, when it comes time for you guys to write your personal statements, um, just take a deep breath, you know, write whatever comes to heart. Uh, don't feel like you have to plug in pharmacology, physiology, the things that, you know, kind of, uh, revolve around or, you know, build the foundation for the practice. It's okay if you do. It's totally okay if you do, especially if that relates to you in any particular way that may not relate to somebody else. Um, but, you know, that being said, just, just let, 
you know, have some people pre-read uh, or proofread your personal statements when it comes time. Um, and just be yourself, you know, especially through the interview trail. Uh, you're going to meet a bunch of people who you may or may not have a lot in common with. They come from different walks of life. Um, some people are coming from different careers altogether uh, who have been engineers or you know, physicists or whatever it may be, pharmacists or something before they get into applying for anesthesia. Um, but you just have to look at it like what, you know, you know who you are, you're confident in that. And you have to let these people believe in you just the same on that same, you know, interview trail, however many minutes or hours you have with each interviewer. Um, so very good question. Any other particular questions? Anybody interested in anesthesia? Um, hi, um, my name is Mohamed. Uh, I'm interested in anesthesia, but I also had a quick question. Go for it. Go for it. So earlier you mentioned the, the person who was behind the drapes with a CRNA. Mm -hmm. And um, what do you think about, like, I guess, the future of anesthesia and, like, the way you practice anesthesiology? Um, with CRNAs being more pre prevalent in the OR? So that's a very good question. Um, what many of you may not know, but actually I hope you don't know because there's not much reason for you to know at this point. Um, the position of a CRNA was actually founded by an anesthesiologist. I don't say that to claim ownership, but I say that to just kind of give you a little bit of background. So from a business model, CRNAs is an attractive, if you're trying to run a business and be efficient and cost effective, CRNAs are a fairly attractive option. So what we currently have in majority of hospitals, excluding California, is a team care model. What that means is you have one anesthesiologist who can supervise uh, usually about four up to sometimes six or eight, depending on how they want to stretch these anesthesiologists out. CRNAs or AAs, which are, uh, I believe they're anesthesia assistants, very similar to a CRNA, just not as much training or a different route as far as training, I should say. Um, so there is a little bit of, um, there are some CRNAs who have, you know, the, they have come together for political action committees to push for CRNAs to have independent practice. They've tried for multiple years, particularly through the VA system. They've tried for many years and have been unsuccessful to get that, to become into, you know, that bill to pass basically. Um, I will say that I have no, I mean, I, I don't have any objections to working with CRNAs. I, our, in our practice, we have um, roughly about 40 CRNAs between all the hospitals that we cover. Um, and majority of the CRNAs that we work with, none of them are so prideful that, you know, they feel like they don't need us. It's just, a, it's a matter of clinical exposure. So on average, a CRNA gets about, and I don't know, the numbers may have changed, but I would say 2,000 to uh maybe 4,000 clinical hours, something to that effect, if that. Um, and an anesthesiologist clearly over four years, a CRNA gets about a year and a half of clinical exposure and obviously anesthesiologists get three and or more, uh, depending on fellowship. But we average about 15, 12 to 15 to 20,000 hours clinically. So there's just a, a gap in knowledge. Um, and so the way it's set up with this team care model is my daily activities would involve me going to see a patient in the morning, you know, I'll go pre-op a patient, I'll see whatever CRNAs I have uh, working with me today, and then just touch base with them, let them know, I mean, these guys know what they're doing, you know what I mean, for the most part. You, you, you assume after, you know, you build a relationship with them, you know how they practice. Um, so you kind of let them know straight out, you know, is there anything in particular you're worried about with this patient? Is there anything you want them to do in particular with this patient to protect the patient? Um, 
And that's pretty much it. You know, you touch base and then you, the pa they'll take the patient in the room. They'll start the case. If it's, you know, ideally you want to be there for the beginning of the case, especially if that's a tricky, like it's going to be a tricky airway or an anticipated difficult airway, um, get the case started. Um, and then I'll, you know, you, you just kind of keep moving, you know, I'll go see other patients. Um, if there's any, anything that comes up, the CRNA will either call you directly or they'll have the circulating nurse call you into the OR. And if it's truly an emergency situation, they'll just come overhead and say, anesthesia stat to whatever OR and pretty much everybody in our practice from the CRNAs to the anesthesia techs, the anesthesiologists, if they're not actively doing something at that very moment, everybody's going to shoot to that OR. Um, it's just that we all protect each other in that right. And you'll find that across the board, uh, pretty much anywhere you practice. Um, so I'm not too concerned about the CRNA structure as far as saying there's going to be a, limit, a limited number of anesthesia jobs available because of that. There's actually a nationwide shortage right now uh, for anesthesia providers on both ends, CRNAs and MDs. Um, so, I mean, that, that kind of goes to show that there's always going to be opportunities. And even so much more that, you know, that would work further in your favor because you have more of a choice as far as where you want to practice. Um, and it, there's, you know, there's different things that move you in different directions, whether it's location, whether it's family, um, whether it's, you know, financial compensation, you know, different places offer you different things. So when it comes time for you to actually pick a job, you can kind of custom make what you want to do. If you don't want to go somewhere that's a very big practice, you don't have to. If you don't, if you want to go somewhere that has a level one trauma center and you're going to be, you know, hands deep in traumas and doing all kinds of, you know, uh, crazy, exciting stuff, you can do that as well. Um, if you want to do something as simple as like a surgery center where you're doing nothing but ear tubes and ENT PD cases, you know, same day surgery type of stuff, you can find that job as well. There, there are definitely jobs out there. Um, most oftentimes though, you, if you're in a hospital situation or a private group situation, you will be taking call. And again, that just depends on how big the group is, how often you take call. Um, a, a typical week for me, it's a little different here because our practice um, is busier than most um, because we had a few anesthesiologists that relocated, uh, which we actually just hired a few more. But uh, I take call. Uh, the two types of call that you'll usually take are in-house call, which is basically you stay in the hospital for 24 hours uh, versus home call, which is you're on call for 24 hours. So that's so, so much so that whenever you get called, you, you respond. Usually the contracts that you'll find say you have 30 minutes to respond. Um, and then it, it's, it's once every week, probably, uh, ideally, once every five, four to six days, um, excuse me, and then maybe a weekend uh, or two weekends. All that is, is benign in the sense that you, you can kind of see what your practice is going to be. Whenever you go to interview for jobs, these are obviously the questions you're going to ask um, to kind of get an idea of what to expect whenever you, if you do sign up to, to practice with that particular group or hospital. Um, so very good question. What else do you guys have? I think a couple of people joined a little bit later. Um, Hi, my name is Josh. Um, uh, thank you for touching on that. I just wanted to ask, like, does your interaction with the CRNAs change whether you do a fellowship or not? Not really. Um, so our practice, uh, we do our own hearts. The MDs do our own hearts. Um, so the CRNAs don't do the hearts. So that my, my particular area of expertise, if you will, doesn't necessarily reflect too much on them. But the way I looked at it is if you can take care of some of these very, very sick hearts, then you can pretty much take care of anybody um, with the exception to, you know, some very challenging congenital pediatric stuff, which I didn't get m too much exposure because that wasn't really my avenue. Um, so the CRNAs, I mean, 
they're very, they're, they're just regular, they're normal people, just like you and I. Um, they love what they do, majority of them, just like in every, every specialty, you know, some people love their lives, some people, you know, hate it every day they wake up and go to work. It's just, I don't know why that is, but that's just what, what it is. Um, so, I mean, we laugh and joke, I laugh and joke with my CRNAs every day. I mean, anesthesia period is a pretty light specialty in the sense that, you know, we don't like, we don't, we always are pretty chill, pretty happy. We don't really carry a lot of stress on us. Um, we get in stressful situations, but those usually don't last for too long and you figure it out and, you know, pull the patient through and then you're pretty much done. Another speaking in that same light, one of the benefits for me, what was very important is I leave work at work. I don't come home and I don't have a pager. Um, I don't come home and have to do anything work related other than just find out what my assignment's going to be for the next day. Now, granted, if I'm on call, there's a 24 hour period. I'm actually post call now. So I was at the hospital uh, from about 6 a.m. What's today? Thursday, 6 a.m. Yeah, yesterday until about seven this morning. Um, and I had a quiet night. I had, I had a trauma that come in, uh, PD trauma. Um, but other than that, I mean, I was done with, technically done with work at about 11 at night. Um, and my phone didn't, my, didn't ring the entire night. So I got some good sleep. Um, it's hit or miss. You know, it happens. Uh, but as far as the CRNAs, I mean, they're, they're just regular people. You know, as long as you build a relationship with them and you kind of start to understand how they practice and if there are any limitations in, as far as their knowledge or if they have any styles, everybody develops a style. So if you notice that there's something about how they've developed their style of practice that doesn't really work for you, just, you know, you have to kind of finesse your plan upon them rather than just hover over them and say, no, you're going to do this. You know, you treat them like a human being and you kind of tell them, well, I would do this because, or I'd much rather you do this because, and then give them the rationale and they'll understand it. It may be a concept that they may not even really be familiar with because they just hadn't been exposed to it. Um, but I mean, you know, you treat people like people, everybody works out. And at the end of the day, it's never about us. Um, it's always about the patient, right? So you'll find some CRNAs that are kind of jaded. They don't like, um, I'll be flat out honest, they don't like that you make as much money as you do in comparison to them. It's just the nature of the beast, right? I mean, they could have gone to medical school and had this opportunity if they put in more time. You don't ever want to tell them that because that's not going to help the relationship, but they know, you know, and these are the people that have a chip on their shoulder. You, you just, just kind of work around it. Um, it usually doesn't last long because at the end of the day, they do fairly well themselves. So, you know, they really have no reason to be mad or jealous. Um, but again, a good question. I have a question. Um, yeah. I know you, you talked about personal statements and stuff like that for interviews mm -hmm. and stuff like that. What else, like as far as other things that, that could fluff up or not fluff up, that could no, our resume, you right. know, um, as far as like research and uh, other things that we could look into doing to make our, to make our portfolio to the, the, the interview committee more attractive, you know, since a lot of people... Right. You know, That's a good question. Re have, like, the, best, the best chance of doing something, you know, you know, it's um, this is actually a really good question in the sense of I don't know if there's a really good answer. Um, I'm not in academia. Um, so I, that may be better served answered by somebody who is actively like on an interview committee um, or something to that effect. I will say that research is good um, all across the board. But in particularly, if you can do something in research that um, that shows you are even more dedicated to that specialty, that's even better. But there's not much research to be had within the field of anesthesia. So it's kind of weird. So like, I didn't look at, when I looked at, when I went over applicants uh, interview, I mean, uh, applicants packets, 
the fact that they had research really didn't sway me. I feel like I'm more of a, I want to know who you are. If you did research, that's great. I'm not going to, I'm not going to put necessarily somebody who didn't get the opportunity to do research at a disadvantage to this person. Some of the older people in, that I interviewed or that I interviewed with or had on my committee, they were very big on research. Um, but there's a, a divide with, with anesthesia. You can either go into academics, or you can go into private practice. Now, granted, research is very necessary in you know, advancing the specialty and advancing the field. Um, I would say if you can get research, I don't, I don't know what the climate is now because again, this was, I was on an interview committee about, oh, what year was that? It was about five years ago. So I don't know how much has actually changed. Um, so I would say if you can get research in whenever, wherever you can get it in, if it's interesting to you, by all means do it. Um, I, it's, it's a very tough question to answer. I can't give you a right answer. I, I know that back then when I applied, it was almost like you, everybody was so nervous because they had to get research in. Um, but I don't know if that actually ever helped anybody get a, a spot, you know, unless you were really going to, you know, take it to another level and, and come up with, you know, something that's going to change the practice or the, the, the specialty in and of itself. So I would say, I mean, if, if you have a window, like there's a window for you to get research in where there's uh, months to set aside, I don't know how the curriculum is set up, go for it, do it. If, it, if it's in your particular field, great. If you're going to do anesthesia, it's probably a little bit trickier to get a research project that's involved, that directly involves anesthesia. Um, but something in the long lines of pharmacology or, or physiology, something like that wouldn't hurt. Um, I don't think I asked a single person I, I interviewed about their research, just because one, it probably didn't relate to the specialty, and two, it's not going to tell me, and I don't think most of the time that's what I want to know about who you are. Um, there's so much more I can ask you um, rather than, you know, probe on that. I know some people actually would pick on certain candidates because they want to see, like, why they did research. And of course, as a candidate, you don't want to sit there and say, well, I felt like I had to have had my resume, you know, versus actually wanting to do the research. Um, I wish I had a better answer for you. I would say if you have the opportunity to do it, if you don't have the opportunity, I wouldn't necessarily frown upon it. Um, it's, if, if it comes down to it and your scores are where they need to be and the rest of your application is, is complete um, and it represents you, I don't think it'll hinder you. No, yeah, no, that's a totally good answer. Thank you. Mm -hmm. What else, you guys? This is fun. Give me some more good stuff. I'll be probably more honest than I should in certain questions, so don't hesitate. I got bumped off. I do have a really quick question. For sure. And so I'm really glad that you're telling them that the first go around that you applied, and I don't know if you already covered this already because I got bumped off, okay. that you didn't match. Right. Why do you think that happened? Uh, I think that was really just a matter of my scores, my step scores weren't as competitive. Um, I had research, a little bit of research under my belt, even though it wasn't necessarily related to um, the specialty. Um, I think at that point in time, I know the acronym, I don't know if it's still valid, but the acronym was the road to happiness, which is, you know, radiology, ophthalmology, anesthesiology, and dermatology. So that was just, that just was, would float around everywhere. Everybody would talk about that. So at the time, those were the four quote unquote hardest um, residencies to get because the step scores were getting up there. Uh, for me, I lived a really good life in medical school. I, I, I always make it a point to live a really good life. So I had fun. Um, undergrad, med school, 
I could have applied myself more um, and really, you know, grinded out just studying and so forth. But like I said, I, I maybe wasn't as disciplined as I probably should have been then. But I mean, you apply yourself how you will and, you know, reap the benefits and or, you know, um, consequences of such. So I think really that all boiled down to the fact that I just, I was living more than I probably should have. And I wasn't as focused as I should have been to bust out, you know, my steps and um, make myself a better candidate, at least for the numbers, make myself a better candidate to get the interview. It's all about getting the interview. Once you get the interview, none of that matters. It's about who you are as a person. You have to let these people know who you are. They don't care. I mean, like I said, the numbers get you there. Honestly, I would, I could put somebody's application to the side and say, okay, you got your interview, you're in front of me. Now, what makes me, convince me that you are going to be a great and then whatever specialty you're going into. Why is that? You know, what, what would let me believe if I were your patient that you know what you're doing and you're going to take care of this? Um, so that's really, the, that's really my, I think my reason for not getting in the first time. And, and if you guys don't happen to match, the world is not over. Life not by any means end. You just keep going. You've gotten to that point. Keep going. You're not going to be denied. You're going to get a spot. You're going to get in. You're going to get whatever you want. Just keep pushing. It's frustrating. It's nerve wracking. Um, it, it's, you know, it's cumbersome as far as like you have more work to do and other round of applications. But if you really want whatever it is that you want, you're going to get it. And that applies to anything in life. So, I mean, I think you guys will do fine. Um, if it doesn't happen to work out, you know, per the script that somebody's told you has is how it's how it's, it's supposed to go. Who cares? You know, nobody's you, you know, you're going to get to where you want to get to. That's an awesome answer. And everything happens for a reason. So I'm really glad that you were like really honest with us. And I'm always obsessed, like, especially with this inaugural class, I was afraid that like some of them wouldn't match, but luckily it's such a small class. It's only 50 kids where I went, I was mm -hmm. one of 240. Yeah. So we're able to put a lot more focus on them and, you know, right. freak out during Definitely. lunch day. But I'm really glad that you were able <laughs> or to celebrate. It's a, it's a lot easier true. to party. It's a lot easier to party with a hundred and some people versus like. <laughs> that's very true. But no, but thank you very much for your answer. And of course, yeah, of course. that's amazing. Um, what else? This is really fun. And you guys can get my, oh, go ahead, Kevin. Do you have a question? Yeah, yeah, I have a quick question. My name is uh, Kevin Oriano. Um, I'm not too familiar with anesthesia. Um, mm -hmm. Times I've been OR with a shadow for surgeries and stuff. Mm -hmm. So I understand that anesthesia, you know, obviously the beginning is really important and the end is really important. What, what mm -hmm. do anesthesiologists do like during the majority of the case, like that middle part? So I'll talk to you from perspective of me actually doing my own case. So anesthesia, just a really basic, broad perspective or, or breakdown of it um, is we look at it like there's five there's five port parts or portions so you have um your preoperative situation or evaluation your pre-induction uh scenario which is basically your conversations you building a plan what meds you're considering giving at what doses as you move forward um and then you have induction induction is when you basically you know michael jackson made propofol famous everything in anesthesia is propofol this is when you get propofol or other agents, but more, more often than not, you're going to get propofol. So this is when you actually induce anesthesia. So you get the patient off to sleep, whether it's sedation or general anesthesia, whatever it may be. Um, and then you have intubation if it's going to be a general anesthetic with an endotracheal tube. So induction, intubation, um, and then you have what is formally known or technically known as 
maintenance phase of anesthesia versus what we like to call cruise control. Um, so that's pretty much when you've got your patient dialed in, they're asleep, you know, everything is kind of balanced hemodynamically, and then the surgery can start. Um, the surgeon is going to obviously do everything in their power to protect that patient and get the surgery done as, as best as possible. But, you know, if depending on what the surgery is, um, depends what well, will de uh, determine how involved you are with the surgery. So a lot of people don't think, you know, this is what people believe us to pop up in a newspaper, start trading stocks, texting, yada, yada, yada. You technically can do whatever you want to do so long as you're dialed into your patient, you know your patient and you know the surgery because there's certain things, vascular surgeries, we do off pump uh, cabbages or bypasses, which is very technical. So there is no time for you to just doze or like wander off and not be dialed into the surgery because every time a surgeon lifts a heart on a beating heart, you're gonna have pressure issues. Um, so you have to anticipate literally every suture that he throws, every move that he makes because it's going to affect your hemodynamics and that's obviously your number one priority. Um, so, once you get through the maintenance phase, um, you will do emergence, which is basically when you turn off your anesthesia gas or you stop your infusions or whatever it's going to be to transition that patient to waking up and then extubation. Uh, and I'm, I'll just say extubation because we're going to assume that this patient had an endotracheal tube. So there's each one of those five categories has its own challenges or particulars, and you have about three or four different plans in each part. Maintenance phase is usually the just keeping them as eubulimic as possible, you know, monitoring blood loss, making sure their vitals are in check. Um, if they're, you know, a particular type of patient, a renal patient or something, and you're worried about particular electrolytes, you probably start an arterial line and check lights uh, every you know, 30 minutes or whatever, whatever your style of practice is, but just something that's gonna allow you another monitor. Um, so we're all about monitoring everything. And then, you know, obviously correcting and adjusting and doing everything we can to keep them hemodynamically stable. Uh, get them through the surgery. I mean, keep them asleep, obviously, but, you know, so just let me dispel a couple of rumors. There was a movie that came out, I think, right before residency called Awake. Have any of y'all seen that? Maybe, maybe not. Well, if you have, I haven't actually seen it, but I know that my patients, I feel like every one of my patients has seen it because they come to me and they say, well, what if I wake up during the surgery? And as much as we want to laugh and say, you know, that's actually a real fear for some people. So you have to <laughs> reaffirm that you know what you're doing. And during that maintenance phase, um, they're, not gonna, they're not gonna be aware. Uh, we have a particular monitor, a BIS monitor that we use that throws out a, some, what some people call a random number generator, but it has its correlations to EEG and it allow you to kind of get a sense or a depth of, uh, a measure of the depth of anesthetic uh, for that patient. So um, that's really it. I mean, that's, that's the basic, if you're doing your own cases, you'll extubate the patient, Make sure again that they're stable, they're ventilating on their own, uh, you know, pulling adequate, adequate, adequate tidal volumes, and then you get them over to PACU. Um, you give handoff to a PACU nurse. Patient's going to continue to wake up while they're in PACU. Um, but that's not to say that it's not without complications in PACU. So you, you have to be very specific to your nurses about what they should be worried about. Um, and ideally, what will happen is they'll continue to wake up, they'll be in recovery for about 45 minutes to an hour. Um, then they'll get sent to phase two of recovery. Uh, and then essentially if it's a same day surgery, they go home or they'll go from recovery up to the floor, wherever their next destination is. Um, Thank you. Yeah, no problem. I guess let me, so a typical work day, as far as hours are concerned, this is probably important. 
um, there's really no set hours. It, it, we don't really do shifts. CRNAs will do shifts. But as far as the MDs, especially if, you're, if, you, own your, if you own the practice <clears throat> or if you're a partner in the practice, you pretty much do whatever it takes to protect the group. Um, so we don't have like a, a seven to five type of day. Um, I think an ideal situation would be like for me, I'm post call today, so I'm off all day. Tomorrow, I usually go in earlier than most, but I'll get to work at about six o'clock. First surgery start at about 730. Um, and then if I don't have any call status, as in to say I'm not on call or backup call or anything like that, it really just is determined by the OR schedule. We're fairly busy uh, most of the time outside of COVID um, 2020. Um, so I, it just varies. I would say an average day for me would be about seven to, you know, 7.30 starts, probably get out of the hospital anywhere from three to five. Um, sometimes even earlier, it just depends, you know, how many people in your group, who's post-call. Uh, post-call people always get out first, just, you know, out of respect to the practice. Um, and then the call people, um, you know, will take over the last, you know, four to eight o ORs that are running. We run a model of one anesthesiologist to four CRNAs. Um, so our CRNAs are on shifts, so they're basically obligated to us from 7 a.m. to 3 p.m. Anything after that is overtime for them. Um, and so again, however you build your practice or whatever practice you join, that's also something that you may want to look into because um, if CRNAs leave or they're not in shifts, the MDs have to pick up the work. So you may stay later just to finish out the cases. Most places are very good about after 3 p.m., it's, it's overtime for everybody, including nurses. Um, so most places try and wind down the OR schedule to where you're not doing elective cases anymore after 3 p.m. What else? Wow, it's already been like 45 minutes. Look at that. This is fun. I know a lot of people don't know much about anesthesia. Um, um, I have a question. Sure, what's up? Can you do cardiothoracic uh, surgery cases without be, being like uh, through going through a fellowship? Like basically? You can. Okay. You can. I mean, there are CRNAs that do cardiac cases. It's just a matter of, you know, the exposure you get during your training. You're going to get enough training to do anything when you get out of residency. Um, it's just if you want to take it that much farther, you know, to where you can, to where you, you have the, the foundation, you have the knowledge to know, like, you know, um, rather than you giving a particular medicine to fix the blood pressure, you know why that blood pressure is where it is. And you know how to ultimately try and get to the root of that problem so that you're not just continually giving a med to bump the blood pressure, you know, a hundred times to get them through the surgery. You don't want to just be the one fixing numbers. You want to get to the root of it, you know, so you don't have to worry about fixing the numbers anymore. Um, so yeah, MDs, I mean, I'm one of two cardiac trained physicians uh, in our group. There are pretty much everybody in our group can do hearts. Um, some defer to us because, you know, that's just not their, their realm of comfort. Um, but yeah, you don't, you, I did so many PD and neuro cases in residency that I would, I laughed at the chance of doing a fellowship for either one of those because I'm like, there's, there's just doesn't make sense. You know, I, I'm very comfortable doing any of these cases. Now, if it's a peds case for like some kid that has congenital deficits or, you know, Fontan and all these crazy cardiac stuff, I'm going to fall back and respectfully and be like, Hey, I can do the case. I'm probably not the best person to do the case in this group. And if anybody in our group isn't really qualified to do that case, we really have to have a sit down with the surgeon and say, hey, this is probably not where you want this kid to have the surgery. You may want to send this kid out, you know, especially if you, if that surgeon is capable of doing it, he'll know. The surgeons know like, okay, these guys, I'm not going to even put them 
in front of this patient like that because it's not fair to anybody. It's not fair to the patient versus the anesthesia provider because you never want to tackle something, you know, jump in there and be prideful um, because you're going to get yourself in trouble. Um, and it's just not, it's not necessary. So for any reason, if you're not comfortable doing something, even in your own practice or specialty, whatever it is, you know, speak up. Um, don't ever bite your tongue in that regard. And I know some people are very prideful. They're like, oh, I can take care of anything. And then next thing you know, they're calling a code. And you're like, I thought you could take care of anything. And then they're looking in hindsight, like, you probably should have deferred. Um, so yeah, you, you'll get enough training. And that's again, like I'm going back to the fact that if it's an ACGME accredited fellowship, guess what? It's a fellowship, I mean a residency, sorry. And you graduate that, guess what? The rest is up to you. It's up to you to pass your boards. It's up to you to, you know, knock out if you have oral boards, whatever specialty you're into. Oh, so anesthesia does have oral boards. Not to scare you. <laughs> it's not, it's not fun, but it's doable. What does that even mean? Oh, okay. So, so what happens is once you finish your residency and you meet all the requirements to graduate from residency, you have written boards. Um, so you'll sit down for one, yet another exam, um, which is, uh, ooh, how long was it? I can't remember. I think it was broken down into two, four hour sessions, but you, you take written boards. Um, I don't remember what the timeline was. I think within a, a year of graduation, is when you take your written boards. Um, I'll have to double check that. But then you have to pass your written boards to get to your oral boards. Now, not every specialty has oral boards. Um, and that's also something that you want to research within your own particular specialty. Uh, for anesthesia, we do have written boards. So if you pass oral, uh, you pass, I'm sorry, every, not every specialty has oral boards. I don't know if I misspoke with there. Once you pass your written boards, then you can apply for your oral boards. Um, the way our oral boards are set up is fairly nerve wracking. Just be, I mean, I think it's the same with any specialty that has oral boards. You're basically sitting in front of people who know what they're talking about and you feel like you don't know what you're talking about, period. When in fact, you definitely know what you're talking about. Probably sometimes even maybe more than them because you're fresh out of residency. Um, so yeah, you basically sit in front of two interviewers. Um, so you go, they fly, you fly to North Carolina, I believe it was North Carolina. They have a big building that's the headquarters of anesthesia they have a floor in that big building there's a secret service guy that picks you up <laughs> i said call him a secret service guy because he's got this earpiece which just just fakes you out right it makes you feel like you know don't say anything out of line because the government's listening um but they pick you up in a, char a charter bus or a sprinter van or whatever they take you to the building they walk you guys all upstairs everybody's dressed in their you know nice suits and whatnot everybody's nervous is all outdoors i actually was fairly nervous i didn't sleep the entire night before I was in the, in my notes. I don't know why it didn't make a difference, but, um, so you get up there, you sit in front of, I mean, it's, they, I hate the way they do it because it's almost like they're, they're telling you not to be nervous, but they're doing everything in their power to make you nervous. Um, for us, I, it may be a good thing because we, you can't allow yourself to be nervous in the OR. So it kind of may work. And this is how you kind of know where you are. Um, but yeah, you go up to this floor, then you have two different sessions where they give you a clinical vignette. You sit in a room with all of your fellow test takers. They give you a clinical vignette. You, you have like 10 to 15 minutes to make notes. You make notes about pre-op, uh, intra-op, post-op, you know, certain things that you're worried about. Um, then you go and sit, you go to your room, you shake hands with a senior interviewer. There's a junior interviewer in the room. You're sitting in this very tiny room. There's a table in front of you. There's a screen on the wall. There's a microphone built into the table. And they ask you, you know, are you doctor such and such? You say yes. And they say, do you have the same clinical vignette as us? You say such and such. And then it's basically like go. And then they can ask you any and everything they want. Um, how would you do this? You know, why would you do this? 
And basically what they're trying to do is to see how flexible you are because in anesthesia, you have to be flexible. You can't think there's just one way to fix the problem. Um, you have to understand that there's about four problems, the interplay of everything and how you, you know, work your way through each one of them. So they just don't, they want to see that you're not rigid ultimately. So then what you don't want to do is paddle yourself up a river that you can't get back from. Um, Cause that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to draw you in to be like, okay, well, why would you do that? Are you sure you want to do that? What else could you do? You know, these are the type of questions they're just going to keep throwing at you. And you know, you relax. My interviewers were actually really awesome. They told me straight up, they said, look, just say what you want to say. If you're not sure, say you're not sure. Don't lie. We can read through all of that. They said, just speak freely. You know, what would you do? You've been at this for four, three years of clinical anesthesia. You know what to do. You graduated. You passed your written boards. You know what to do. They have to reinforce you. And in your own mind, you, you know, you reinforce yourself and say, hey, what's the worst? You know, that can happen. I know what I'm doing. Um, it's a lot different when you're being grilled by two people versus being in the OR in front of a patient and it's you and them. Um, but Ultimately, it's the same thing. And again, it's just another step in the process that you get through and you look back at it and you say, well, I'm glad that's done. They, they do a good job of like preparing you like on your way out from residency. My best friend is an anesthesiologist. And so they had that mannequin. Mm -hmm. And so they'll do different scenarios. And so she got really lucky. They set her cart on fire, not literally. Oh, nice. They're like, your cart's on fire. What are you going to do now? And so nice. she had to be quick on her feet right. in a fake scenario and figure out how she was going to protect her patient or put out her cart fire, which by the way, I have no idea how you do that. Um, That's actually interesting because more so than the cart fire, I've, I mean, there's plenty of scenarios that you'll hear about where there's a fire in the airway because the surgeon's like doing a trach and they, you know, you're, it was too high and, you know, spark, there's a spark and there's ignition and, uh, you know, and then the steps of what you do that, but I mean, the cart fire probably just, they may have said that just to throw, throw it for a loop, like, wait, oh, yeah. wait. Now what do I do? Like, but it's just effectively the same thing. You have to protect that airway and protect that patient because you're giving him an FiO2 that's probably higher than it should sometimes. So yeah, there's all the right things to cause a, a fire in the OR. But no, that was, that's interesting. So yeah, I mean, effectively that's, that's what it is with oral boards in any specialty. They're trying to see, they want to know how much you know, but also how you're going to apply it and how your mind works. They just kind of want to see that you can, your mind works like it should for that practice. Thank you so much for joining us on this edition of Coffee to Go. If you guys need any more information about the field of anesthesiology or want to be matched with a career advisor, please feel free to email us at cim at utrgv.edu. Thank you so much, and we'll catch you next episode. Thank <laughs> you.